0: let's start hey, hey
1: Bob yeah can I just ask Tracy a personal question yeah please?
0: sure of course
1: Tracy um, I sent you an email or a text message did you ever get it no okay the reason I did is because my son and daughter-in-law now live in Wichita Falls and I thought you might like to meet them I would love that okay okay um, I'm gonna try and send you uh, a text message again and and um, maybe we can talk about it, okay yeah, I'm just gonna put my phone number in the chat. oh okay, great, perfect. Thank you, sorry, Bob.
0: no that's all right um you guys go ahead what and hold the rest of us just keep us here on hold while you guys go about your business. <laughs> God <laughs> <laughs> what what to do with these
2: the <laughs> <policy>. <laughs> what
0: to do with these two women? God. Yeah, God. okay you guys you guys ready um it's good to see you all again genuinely let's let's get started um I've got some really serious questions about return of the king that are um mm-hmm. they actually shake me a little bit i'm 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 being honest um that the um but let's wait till we get there any any opening prayers any prayer requests from any of you I'm going to put you all on mute again and please just um, come off anytime you want. Um, don't hesitate and and if if you could put yourself back on mute when you're done um, um, Tracy it looks uh, Deb did you get Tracy's email there? Yeah. Um, any prayer request? Unmute yourself if you're if you have any. Um, who was the? It was. Oh, it was Kathy's. Yeah. Was. yeah. yeah. <sighs> okay. Let's let's start. This is on pause. I have no idea what's going on. Let's start. Um, In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. um, Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass. Um, In one of the readings you describe the kingdom in terms of a man spreading seeds. Um, it was a wonderful image if sorry if I can I'd like to read it for everybody if I can. Um, you were describing the kingdom and you said, This is how it is with the kingdom of God. It's as if a man were were to scatter seed on the land and would sleep and rise night and day and through it all the seed would sprout and grow. He knows not how. It's a wonderful tagline. um, The kingdom being like um, somebody spreading seeds and watching them grow and do what they do and yet in some ways know not how. Um, it's a reminder that so much of what goes on in our life is enveloped in mystery. Um, it's going to be of particular importance in our discussion tonight because we're going to look at it something that I think is one of the most profound mysteries at the center of our faith. Um, for your words to us, for all the ways you ask things of us that are hard, um, And um, you do that um, so often um, in your parables in ways to leave us wondering um, about things so that we're not standing in the world as if we know everything and have all the answers because we don't. For all your kindness, um, your generous, great-hearted love for us, for all that you do. Thank you, Lord. Um, I ask a special blessing on one of the parishioners here um, whose friend um, took his life. Um, Watch over that young man. Please forgive his sins. We don't know the circumstances of what people do today. It's a hard world. Marriages are in trouble, families struggle. We are in a culture that is so squarely set against us. Um, um, So, um, thank you for your constant care. You're never not here. That we should be thinking of you off someplace in heaven is a little bit astounding. You're always right next to us somewhere. Right next to us. Guardian angels, you yourself, um, you know the deepest longings in our heart, you know our troubles. Um... There's this wonderful passage in the book of Tobit, where Tobit talks about you, Yahweh, your father, um, being, I can't remember how it goes, but being with us at times and then letting evil work itself. To me, it was such an apt description because I think for so many of us, we feel okay a lot of the time. And then suddenly... We're faced squarely with our sins, and it's like we're somebody we'd like not to be. It's like you allow evil to do its work. Um, Let us be glad for that. Not be afraid. To know it's, um, to trust in your wisdom, your love, um, that you let these things go to encourage us to turn to you to stop acting like we can do it all on our own. So for all the ways you watch over us and the mysteries that they involve, thank you, Lord. I ask for a special blessing on the work that we're doing as a group. Um, Let all of us, um, help help us not to just leave this stuff in our heads to be smart or well-read. Help us to take these things and make them living in our own lives, living words. Um, ultimately, from you, through these great poets, we offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, okay, I want to read. Um, did you? Did all of you get? I, I'm assuming all of you are checking your emails on on class day, so you're getting these emails, yeah? Okay. I think I'm going to send you a. Well, no, yeah. But. Okay, you all got them. The poems that I want to do tonight are um, Timur Mortors and this little ditty that um, Suzanne discovered. She, she's been reading Orthodoxy, and in the, in the edition she has, there's an introduction in which the, the person doing the introduction quoted this poem. I'd not read it before. So it was a just a genuine joy for me, and more of a joy because I to me it, it captures what's at the heart of Chester. He is the most generous-spirited person I have ever read in my life, ever, ever. He's the most brilliant, the most intelligent, the most generous. He has the largest heart of any man I have ever read. That's including Dante and Shakespeare, and he's in our time. Anyway, I'll read these these two poems, the Timur Mortis and Chesterton's little poem. Okay. Um, Timur Mortis, uh, it, if you got my note, you know it's, um, it's a medieval poem. So it goes back, it takes us back to the Middle Ages, back to Chaucer's time and before um, when Europe was uniformly Christian and... Um, Um, The lines um, Timur Mortis um, contribute me are are taken from the the mass for the dead. Um, Death frightens me, it disturbs me. Um, It's a prayer in which the the penitent acknowledges that he's been sinning and not repenting for his sins, so death frightens him. Um, So I'll read that and then this little um, five-line poem of Chesterton's because The two of them, in one way, express the sort of pulls of lyric poetry from a celebration of life to a mourning um, concerning death. Timur Mortis. In what a state soever I be, Timur Mortis, conturbate me. As I went on a merry morning, I heard a bird both weep and sing. This was the tenor of her talking. Remember, in the ancient world or the medieval world, all things talked. We think of, that's absurd today. Um, it wouldn't have been absurd to Chesterton. It would not have been absurd to draw Mandy Hopkins because Hopkins said everything out of voice. The question is whether we understood it. This was the tenor of her talking, Timur mortis, conturbate me. I asked that bird what she meant. I am a musket, both fair and gent. For dread of death, I am all shent. Timur mortis, conturbate me. When I shall die I know no day, what country or place I cannot say Wherefore this song sing I may timor Mortis but may Jesu Christ when he should die to his father he gan say Father he said in Trinity timor Mortis but may remember even Christ said Take this away He knew his hour would come exactly when Um he didn't see so in this little stanza we see our identification with Christ same same trembling kind of heart Jesus Christ when he should die to his father he gan say father he said in trinity Tim or mortis but me all christian people behold and see this world is but a vanity and replete with necessity Timur mortis, contribut me. Wake I or sleep, aeta or drink, when I on my last end do think, for great a fear my soul do shrink. Timur mortis, contribut me. God grant us grace him for to serve and be at our end when we serve, and from the fiend he us preserve. Timur mortis, contribut me. If you if you look in the um, poetry section under the medieval ballads, there's two. We have two um, files. This one is from the one that says medieval poetry selections, I think. It really should go with um, the three ravens, the the poem that I read last week about the ravens coming to the rescue of the doe, because I was talking about the way in which Aragon's horse comes to rescue him. You know, moderns will give that no thought. That would have been a commonplace in the Middle Ages. There were three ravens sat on a tree, down a down, hey, down, hey, down. There were three ravens sat on a tree with a down. The one of them said to his mate, where shall we our breakfast take? And it has the refrain with a down, dairy down, down, down. Down in yonder green field there lies a knight slain under his shield, down a down. His hounds they lie down at his feet, so well they can their master keep. All of nature was meant to serve man. His hawks they fly so eagerly, there's no fowl dare him come nigh, down to down. We know sometimes that dogs wait for the return of their masters, you know, at the door. I mean, they anxiously wait. And if masters are on a schedule, they know that schedule, even though they have no watches on their paws. They know exactly, and they're at the door, waiting, and howl, and if they don't come on that time, you, they have a way of expressing a sadness or an anxiousness. Down there comes a fallow doe, as great with young as she might go. She lifted up his bloody head and kissed his wounds that were so red. She got him up upon his back and carried him to earth and lake. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself, ere evensong time. She's carrying, um, what do you call it, she's carrying a calf. She's pregnant. Um, she gives her life for this human, even when the cost of it is her dough. She buried him before the prime. She was dead herself, ere evensong time. God send every gentleman, such hawks, such hounds, and such a lemon. Lehman. Such a sweetheart. Down, down, hey down, hey down. Okay, Chesterton's little poem. Um, Chesterton wrote Poe. if you know anything about Chesterton, you know he wrote the Father Brown series, I mean these detective stories. He would probably snap off one of those in 20 minutes at a lunchtime. I'm not kidding. I mean it could be 20 pages long, but he would he would write these, you know, 10, 15 page stories and he wrote poems. He, had a, he has a collection of poetry. I mean, he wrote probably over a hundred books. I, I don't know how he did it, but because he, he didn't stick himself in a cave the way I do. You know, he was out and active publicly and um, but he wrote all these other things too and included in his collection of poetry is this one little poem here. and It goes like this. Here dies another day during which I have had eyes ears hands and the great world around me and with tomorrow begins another why am I allowed to God, let me read it again here dies another day during which I've had hands or eyes ears hands and the great world around me and with tomorrow begins another why am I allowed to it's a good poem to read whenever we're grumbling about things <laughs> to ask ourselves why why have we even been given this day with all, whatever miseries it presents to us? Because I mean to, to put it on its worst so we could join our Savior on his cross in joy. what else is there to say? Okay, um, I'm gonna need I'm gonna need your help on this. Um, what I'd like to do tonight is um, um, briefly identify some of the major themes that we've been talking about and then I'd, I'd like to try to summarize The Return of the King. And I'm, I'm going to need your help on that because I, I don't hold on to these things as well as I think I should. But So help me out on that. And then I've got a couple of really really serious questions about this this last part of the trilogy. So some of the major themes Um, The theme of the ring is central to the whole work, we know that. Um, I've suggested that the ring is um, an image symbolic of the longing for autonomy, that with that ring on people have the power to escape dangers and consequences. And it it seems to arise out of Out of the sinfulness of man this longing for autonomy it's like Satan's longing to be autonomous to not be to not owe anything to God to be completely free it's one of the marks of the modern world that human beings think they're free and autonomous can do whatever they want the ring is an image of that longing for that power and and the power to give it this autonomy And we know that once anybody gives themselves to that longing, it takes over. It roots itself, and when it does, um, it becomes what we call sin. It's this longing to do things on our own as if we we weren't um, called to recognize, to love and give obedience to our Creator, to act as if we didn't need Him and could do whatever we want on our own. Um, the To me, there's two plots. I'll get to both of them in a second. One of them is what I've been calling the pathos of Gollum. It's this one of the main plots that shows the struggle in Gollum to serve Frodo, to help take him to the uh, Mount Doom where he's going to destroy the ring, even though Frodo our, um, Gollum wants that ring more than anything and we're constantly um, invited into these scenes in which Gollum shows these two sides of himself. It's as if there's this inherent longing for goodness but it's become so corrupted that this other voice, this um, wanting to have that ring takes over um, even when it means um, it will lead to killing Frodo and Sam so we watched Gollum in this torment divided between those two options. Um, in the two towers um, we move from this idyllic Arcadian world in the Shire into the what we could call the world of men, the political world and the realms of cities and we watch the intrigues that take place um, involving um, rulers, um, Theoden and, and Denethor um, largely in the um, the rulers of the elfin um, kingdoms. Um, I think it's it's only in the Hobbit that we finally get into the dwarf world and the kings there and the problems with that king. So we had a look at various cities. Um, you can say that um, and I'm going to put this as something of a question it seems to me that one of the distinctions between Gondor and um, Rohan is a little bit like the stereotypical view of Rome and a more simplistic country way of life. Gondor is um, far more full of intrigues and um, vines for power, so it's, a much more, it's an image of a more sophisticated city it's lacking a king. It's waiting on its king. In um, Rohan, we saw um, Theodon undone, slipping into a, um, a kind of decadence and decay because of the influence of Wormwood. But it's a simpler way of life. It's more rustic. It's out in the open. It's more pastoral. Um, um, so we're 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 aware of um, two kinds of cities. One that's far more sophisticated and more renaissance-like and one that's a, a little bit simpler um, and, the, and the problems that they present to the rulers. The focus in both of them, or, or the, yeah, the fact that the focus goes there, opens a whole world on the relationship between parents and children, between, particularly between fathers and sons. Um, Denethor, remember, um, he exalts Boromir. Um, um, but he does it for himself and he constantly puts down Fairmere because he's not an image of what he would like to see in himself so in his relationship with his son we see a father um, treating his sons as projections of himself that he'd like to see himself as this exalted figure, this man of power and a firmness of will and he treats his sons accordingly without seeing the effects that he has on them. Um, um, in um, in Theoden, remember um, we don't see Theoden with children, but he does exile Aelmor um, Zetia yeah, Aelmor. Why why does he exile Doc? Are you here? Why does he exile here? Why do you remember why he exiled Eomir?
3: Mark, go ahead. Um, it, he really didn't. It was under the influence of the other guy, Wormwood. Yeah, but why would he? Do you remember? He because he was Amir was starting to catch on.
0: Yeah, and he He's said he betrayed him control. because. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead.
3: He was starting to see the control that uh, Wormtongue had over everything, and it wasn't going to turn out well. Yeah, well
0: yeah. And if I remember correctly, too, he didn't. He didn't follow through with something that he was asked to do with searching for things and and because he knew that the ring was out there if I remember correctly and he wanted to get it and and didn't. Um, So we're watching the effect of fathers and the way in which political rule affects their decisions as fathers, the effect that it has on particularly their sons here. Um, We've talked about the way in which nature is alive, um, speaking natural things, Um, We see the parody of that in what Sarman does with these creatures that he creates. They're not natural. They're not of nature. Trees speak. Birds are responsive to men. The eagles are responsive. They're images of justice in nature at work just the way the trees are. But Sarman is trying to create um, a creature that's under his power. The rest of nature was made directly by God. It speaks. It conveys a goodness in everything it does. Um... And um, one of the things we touched on, but we didn't go into very much, and I'd like to take a minute with right now, is we've talked so often about um, the way in which Boethius' principles sh- show up more and more now that we've seen him. He's always been there, but I think since we've seen him, it's been easier to see um, the truth of what he said, that, that um, God is at work everywhere in nature, and whatever e- there's no inherent evil in things the Protestant view on this is absolutely wrong. There's no inherent evil. The effects of the fall couldn't have been evil. We, we were not ruined in essence. Um, God takes the evil that men do and turns them to good. So the conclusion that Boethius comes to, as you know, is there is no bad fortune. So what I'd like to do for a minute is just ask you to identify actions which on the surface appear to be bad at the time that are actually turned to good because of what happens can we just get a list of those out just to make everybody aware because the the truth of Boethius is not just a truth peculiar to him it's a truth which means it's universally there do we see it so often we look at at bad things the death of somebody we love or the injuries or failings or hardships that people go through particularly those people we love we look at them and feel sometimes distraught. Boethius is saying there's something wrong with us to feel that way because it's an indication of a lack of faith. If we were really seeing with faith, we'd know that God is doing something even if we don't understand it. So can we name some events that seem to be... um, examples of misfortune at the time that are actually the beginnings of something that will turn to good. Is that clear? Boethi is saying there's no bad fortune, so um, are there events in the story, the whole trilogy, that on the surface look like like events of misfortune, that bad things are happening, that actually become the means of something good? Fred, go ahead
4: when um what's the, the, the white Gandalf, sorry. That's okay. I I've, I've, I as as I get older my memory is amazing. Oh,
0: Suzanne, and I was just laughing cuz oh. Suzanne and I do the same thing. We look at each other saying, now and, as and knowing that each one of us can read the other's mind. <laughs>
4: <laughs> That's right. So uh, when, when Gandalf appears, well, I guess in in fact Maybe he does die in fighting the demon uh, when they're trying to get through the the mountain. Right. And, right. You know, everyone feels like all is lost, but in essence, right, it allows Gondor to become the White Wizard. Yeah. 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 Yeah,
0: that's a huge one because I, I can't. Uh, the mourning that that caused was emphatic. It, I mean, everybody was in despair. They were crushed by, so it, it really is a good example. And then he appears later as the white wizard. Any others? Come on, all of you got to come up with something. Tracy, go.
1: When Mary, Mary and Pippin get separated, you know, they get captured, but that ends up putting them in the forest, and they talk the trees into joining the fight.
5: Right.
0: So. Yeah, Huge. Because the battle wouldn't have turned without Pippin tricking Treebeard so huge. What looked like a disaster actually turned out to be a blessing. Huge one, yeah. Come on, everybody's got Barbara. Mark, Debbie, you've got to come up with something. Come on, Barb.
2: Um, When Frodo, at the very end before the ring is destroyed, decides to keep it, and then Gollum chews it off of his hand, and then we get two for one. So Gollum is destroyed and the ring is destroyed. Right. And right. that's happily ever after.
0: Yeah, and so is Frodo's finger. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know, in the end do we, I didn't notice that he didn't have a finger in the he end. He had half
0: I... a finger, he had half a oh, finger. It's
5: called Frodo of the nine fingers. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay.
0: Only nine or nine and a half or nine, nine. Mark, do you have one?
3: Uh, I would probably go back to your early example from a few weeks ago, of Boromir, uh falling under the spell of the ring, trying to get take it from frodo, and then realizing at the end how wrong it was, and fighting fighting it to his death, and then asking for forgiveness yeah. I, I think. It's, you know, I guess, in the movie anyway, it's a swing of about five minutes, of you know, uh, from one side to the other, which is pretty interesting.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that as, as, an, as an example of this sort of thing, because I, I myself personally think it's one of the great moments in the movie, um, that it leads to a humility that he was incapable of before that. You know, that he was, he was so determined to get that ring. He, and he did it with a bit. He, he was a great leader, clearly a great warrior, a great leader for his people. The soldiers loved him. The people loved him. He was a hero who could defeat an enemy at war. A great, great man. So he was, he saw himself. He was vested in terms of power. That's the way he saw himself. Um, I, I'm so glad that you use that example, Mark, because it's the sort of thing that happens with drug, any addict, drugs, alcohol, pornography, name it. When somebody um, lives in that kind of a world and then comes out of it the way Bormir did, um, asking for forgiveness, it's a little bit like the Oedipus turn when he blinds himself and you know, the depth of humility that he comes to is extraordinary in the story. Um, asking for forgiveness, it's a, I mean, it's, it's a grace-filled action, you know, from beginning to end. Debbie, go ahead.
1: Well, the only thing I can think of uh, other than what has been said is, and this is probably not as significant as those, but when Frodo and they basically turns Sam away, and Sam falls, and and right. he realizes right, right. that he's been lied to, and that Frodo has been lied to, right. and he goes back and um, uh, has a significant part in 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 bringing about what what has to come. So yeah, yeah,
0: he saves Frodo. I mean, he so does. Frodo would have been killed if he, he hadn't. Saves. So yeah, 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 huge, huge moment. Yeah. So what what at that moment looked like a tragedy that the two were going to be separated is turned into a a great thing. Sue, go ahead. Did you have something?
6: You know, I didn't really have anything much different, but I, I guess the other thing that occurred to me is just all of the wars and the deaths that occurred were in service to or along the way of ending the power of the ring but there were so many i mean that isn't as a a single act but there were so many people who were willing to put their lives at risk even the even the dead ones were willing to come come to the rescue but everybody put things at risk for this for something good to come
0: out
6: of it yeah yeah and hopes that the wars we fight will have that
0: yeah if I can take off from that, because that, that just um, gives a larger perspective in which to put all the other things. One of the major crises early in the book is the breakup of the fellowship. You know, the, the men despair. They think it's over. And Frodo and Sam are going to go off, and, and, and uh, Aragon and Gimli and Legolas, um, Aragon's comments is, let's go kill orcs, you know, like it's a sport. But as a matter of fact, what happens is that each of them continue to play a role that's absolutely essential to the, if they had not done that. So the breakup of the fellowship, even though it looked like a bad at the time, that everything was gone, that what they were setting out to do was undermined from the beginning, defeated actually was essential, because Aragon's going to have to go off, which is going to come to the real, the serious question that I've got about the return. Remember, that the title of this book is The Return of the King. So in some sense, we have got to get to Aragorn. But at that moment, when the fellowship breaks off, it looks like the whole enterprise is undercut. Aragorn sort of, I think, heroically, laughingly says, let's go kill orcs. What they go on to do is absolutely essential to everything that happens. Um, take Aragon out of um, Helm's Deep or Minas Tirith, and we've got no story, and we've got no ending. So I loved it because the fellowship, to me, is, is to me one of the most perfect expressions of our Christian faith that I know of, deeply Catholic. That people are in communion with each other, and when the fellow, so it's a group. It's not an individual. It's not a private individual. It's a group of people taking off to accomplish that end. When it cracks, I, I think one of the effects on a moviegoer is to think it's gone, and and yet um, it's not. What each of them goes on to do is to play an essential role in um, in bringing about what happens at the end. So. Okay, I want to get, I want to, I want to get to to the the what to me is at the heart of the Return of the King. Help me out here, you guys. <clears throat> Help me out, Doc. So here's the plot, if I can try to put this together. Return of the so Twin Towers ends with Gollum. remember Frodo and uh, Sam and Gollum are released by um, Fairmere? and sent on their way and, and Faramir's last words to Gollum are, you do anything and I will kill you, something like I don't remember his exact words. And they're set off and um, the two towers ends with Frodo and Sam setting off for Mount Doom with um, Gollum leading them, but Gollum is feel betrayed because he believes that Frodo had, um, had betrayed him when he gave him over to Faramir and his soldiers. I was really upset that Sam didn't say he saved your life. They were all going to shoot you. I, I don't know how those, but I, I, I told him they had to leave it out for, for you know, to, to create the full effect he wanted that Gollum had to feel betrayed. So he was justified, personally justified in feeling vindictive that he could kill, take Frodo and Sam's life. So Two Towers ends with Gollum arguing with himself and there's that image of him appearing on two sides of a tree with one of them saying no don't kill him and the other saying kill him and finally the evil side winning and saying let her do it and Twin Two Towers ends with um, leaving us with this mystery who's the she who's gonna do this what's gonna happen what will Gollum do because it's as if he's letting himself off the hook by having somebody else kill Frodo and Sam but that's the dark mystery that, um, that ends two towers. When Return of the King begins, beautifully what Jackson did. I, I don't know if it's like this in the, in the books, but in the movies it, it goes it takes us to the backstory where Smeagold is with his cousin celebrating his birthday, they're fishing, and his cousin discovers that ring and Smeagold feels entitled to it. He wants it and fights him for it, and then kills him. And it's from another, that point on... Huh?
5: Another evidence of what looks like bad being turned to good. Go ahead, Doc. Because the ring has been hidden for thousands of years. And
0: Can everybody hear Suzanne?
5: And when Drago, the cousin, finds the ring, it brings it into the world of men it makes it possible for the eventual destruction which wouldn't have been if it had been slain yeah hidden.
0: yeah it's just a good illustration of a, a good remember Boethius's line um, goodness is diffusive of itself you um, remember the Latin <clears throat> what's the, Um, Bonum est diffusium diffusium sui. sui. Bonum est diffusium sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. God is good. It's always at work. So, I mean, the ring could have been discovered in any number of ways. We know that. The whole point of this is no matter what happened, that goodness would have been at work answering any evil. Um... Smeagol kills his cousin and then he's um, exiled and goes into the caves for hundreds of years, I guess, and becomes more and more um, under its influence and more and more decay. He loses his identity. He can't even speak his name. That's how much he loses his original identity. He's no longer Smeagol. He can't speak the name Gollum. You remember when he speaks it, he chokes, he coughs. Um, he, he, his identity is so crippled, so deformed. He's captured and he's forced to give information and it's only because another instance of what it looks like bad fortune turning to good. It's uh, because he gives the information that he does that um, Saruman can send the um, Nazgul to, um, to uh, the Shire, which starts the movie remember when they come looking for Frodo so we get the backstory, and then we move back to the present time when Sam and Frodo are heading towards Mount Doom and and you know what happens the 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 scene will um, the scene in which um, Gollum tricks Frodo into separating himself from Sam meanwhile what happens in the world of men um, I think is is um, fairly direct if I can I can recover this. Um, um, when Aragorn and his men def- um, defeat the orcs at Helm's Deep, um, Gollum says that Sauron is going to want vengeance, so they set off for Isengard to find out what happens and when they get there you remember they confront Saruman in the tower and Saruman is knifed by Wormtongue and falls to his death. Um, shortly after that, Pippin looks at the, what's it called? The pal- Palantir, Palantir. remember? And it's because of what he sees that Gollum's let <coughs> know that that Saruman will turn his attention now to Minas Theris. So he takes Pippin there because he knows that, that um, Sauron knows where Pippin is and will follow him there. And Aragorn and Theoden set off to gather forces. Um, that's a crucial point in the story. So two plots are running side by side coincidentally at the same time. The one plot involving Frodo and Sam and Gollum heading to Mount Doom and the other one these forces gathering to protect um, Gondor Because um, um, Sauron is going to turn his attention there to destroy it. Um, Is there? I don't want. I mean, I'm. I'm trusting you guys. Remember what happens with the spider and. um, It it seems there's two important things to hold on here. One, when um, when um, Denethor is faced with a threat of an enemy, he doesn't take action to do anything even though he's he's known for being a capable leader and when the city is actually attacked and threatened because they've taken that outpost, um, Denethor sends Faramir out to his death. We talked about that last week. Um, he's filling his face full of food while his son's on his way to a it's one of To me it's one of the most painful sequences in the whole of the movie. Um, Faram will be will be brought back apparently dead. Um, Pippin will see that he's not dead and tell Gandalf, and Gandalf will go and rescue him. It's in that scene when Denif- um, Denethor, who wanted to kill himself, I think, is full of fire and runs out to the edge of the um, the the the, the, uh, uh, the you call it the cliff not the cliff, but the the square, you know, and throws himself off. um, Meanwhile, what had happened with the other forces is that um, Theodon and Fermer were encamped to gather forces, and it's at that point that the Elfin King comes to um, Aragorn and tells him that um, Arwen, his daughter, is dying from the weight of the evil taking place. Remember she had chosen to stay with Aragorn to give up her immortality and just taking that has put her in a position of being vulnerable. Even though she's not personally being attacked, it's just the weight of the evil around her is having its effect. It's like a cancer on her. She's dying. The king comes to tell Aragorn that and Aragorn is so moved by that scene of hers um, and the king tells him to go to the army of the dead under the mountain. So he goes under the mountain to retrieve this army. Now, and you know that what happens is he brings the army in and the army defeats the um, Sauron's army. And um, and it's at that point that Aragorn says, we have to go to the Black Gate to distract Saruman to give Frodo and Sam a chance t- um, to get past them. Uh, um Here's my question. I mean, I, I, I'm glad to go anywhere you guys want to go, but I, at some point I'd, I'd like to get to the, the what to me are the wrap-up questions. What do we make of the whole of the trilogy? Describe that action. I know that's not going to be easy, but describe that action. And I want to go to um, the question that I that I had last week that Mark opened up in a major way and because of his response. Is this book religious? And if it is, how? because I thought Mark was right on there's nothing
4: overtly.
0: yeah you know explicitly or overtly religious or sacramental um, so on the surface it seems just like a good adventure story um, I myself don't happen to believe that but I don't want I don't want I don't want to put myself what I'd like to do is ask you guys this question but here's the way that I'd like to get to it there are two plots going on simultaneously the Frodo sam Gollum plot to destroy the ring. The two are intertwined. Um, they won't be able to succeed if Aragorn and his company doesn't defeat um, Sauron and his forces. And what happens is, you remember that Minas Tirith is beset, the walls are breached, they're at a point of being destroyed when Aragorn comes with the armies of the dead and theoden theoden and Eremir, the nephew that um that that um that theoden had um had exiled remember their forces appear and to because of their combined forces um aragon with the dead and theoden and arwen with their forces defeat um Sauron's forces and it makes it possible for them to turn their attention to the Black Gate and distract Sauron. So that's what we're looking at, those two themes. They're absolutely intertwined. If Aragorn doesn't defeat Sauron and his forces, it's not likely that Sam and Frodo will get through. If Sam and Frodo won't get through, the ring won't be destroyed and Sauron will be left in power. So everything hinges on what happens in these in these two plots right now. Okay. Now let me stop before I ask my question. Any 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 important things that I've left out or any anything you guys want to add or any questions you have up to this point about what's going on in the plots? Because the question that I've got here to me is major. Major. But I I want to be sure we've all got the plot before we tackle what to me is the... Any any questions or... about plot? Okay, let me try to be as dramatic as I can. I mean, to, to be as faithful to the drama as I can. Not be dramatic myself, but be as faithful as I can to the drama. In the Frodo-Sam Gollum plot, Um, We reach a climax at that point where Gollum tricks Frodo into believing Sam will betray him. I think what we're meant to see at that moment is what we've been seeing all along except it's never it's never been practically implemented but it, it is here. It's that Frodo is coming more under the power of the ring just as Gollum is. And the fact that he is as susceptible to Gollum as he is, that he lets Gollum trick him, is just one indication of how much that the ring's power has grown over him. That's a dramatic moment. Frodo's been walking a fine line trying to protect Gollum against Sam all the time and be on guard against Gollum. It's at this point that he he's susceptible and lets Gollum, if I can put it that way, lets Gollum trick him. And you know what happens after that. Gollum takes him into that um, the spider's lair where he's wrapped and going to be killed and it's once again it's a chance for piece of fortune that the orc come along and save him and take him to the tower. At the same time, um, Sam falls, remember, and he discovers the food and he realizes he's been tricked. So um, But it's a major turn of events. I think the point I want to emphasize here is in the drama of that plot, Frodo's been holding his own, but the fact that he gives in to Gollum at this point against Sam is just one indication of how great the power of the ring has become over him. Okay, so that's on that plot. Um, There's a serious drama going on, and you know that Sam's going to save Frodo from the orcs. In the world of men, um, there's a different thing going on. Um, when the Elfin King comes to Aragorn to tell him about his daughter, because he knows she loves Aragorn, he brings the sword that was the sword that was originally used to cut off the ring. and it's the, If I remember correctly, it's the sword that belongs to the heir of Gondor, the rightful heir. The Elfin King brings that sword to him Um, reforged. um, If I call it risen with a risen life, it's renewed. It has a new power a little bit like um, Gandalf. He gives him the sword um, and in that moment we're supposed to see something because for the first time in the movie, um, Aragorn who's tried in every way he could to avoid assuming the position of the king. He's been wary. He's avoided it for hundreds of years? Thousands of years. Thousands. thousands of years? Thousands? Aragon? He's avoided it for a long, long time because he's seen what happens to men when they assume power. Because remember, one of the things we've seen in work after work after work, the city is corrupting of its nature. Once people step into positions of power, they can be men or women, it does not matter. Once they step into positions of power, something happens. The shift from the Shire to the cities is a shift into that world. Aragorn has done everything he could to not step into that position. Although slowly we've been watching this man assume more and more responsibility. I remember when they came out of the cave, to go back to that um, episode that Fred was talking about, when Gandalf looked like he was killed. They were all mourning. They did not want to move. Aragorn said to um, Gimli and Legolas, get them on their feet, or... Bermere, or or, no, Gimli and Legolas. He said, get them on their feet now. That's a sergeant in the service saying, everybody feels bad. You cannot stop here in your feelings. Get up. They had to go on. So, in scene after scene, we've been watching Aragon slowly step into a position of greater and greater authority. Here at the end now, the elfin king Elrond brings him the sword and tells him go to the land of the dead and we all know that scene he goes to the land of the dead they're all frightened nobody returns from the land of the dead alive so when the men watched Aragorn and Gimli and Legolas go into the mountain they assume they've seen them for the last time they confront the land of the dead and Aragorn holds up the sword and says um, I don't remember if he uses the, the word king But he knows that those men owe their allegiance to the king of Gondor. And they're all there because they betrayed their oaths. So we've got Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas, but largely Aragorn confronting the damned, those who are there by betrayals. Now here's my question. Um, If we go back and... um, Tolkien would have known this in his bones. Remember if you go back to the Aeneid where this whole notion of kingship, of recovering a kingship of the past was first introduced. It's implicit in the Iliad with Achilles, it's made explicit with Aeneas in Virgil. Aeneas returns to his home and claims a rightful place as a king, the return of the king, bringing power, judgment, um, destruction, um, it's only in the land of the dead that Aeneas receives his calling. He has, Remember, he. it's only when he goes into the land of the dead and talks with his father Anchises that he receives his call. He's still searching, he's wandering. He only gets it from the dead, not the living. The gods have been giving hints all along. It's his father who gives him that calling. From that moment on, Aeneas is a changed man. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And remember, this is shortly after his fling with Dido. So for a year, he's been doing everything he could to avoid that call. A similar thing happens to Dante. Dante's damned at the beginning of the Commedia. He's damned. Remember, Birch, uh, B, or Mary sends Lucia to Beatrice, Beatrice, Virgil, and Virgil comes to him. And it's only in the land of the dead that he receives his calling. So up until that moment, Dante is wandering, even in the afterlife. He keeps getting all these prophecies about his exile from Florence, constantly. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Remember, this has already taken place. Dante's writing after the fact. But he's presented as if all these prophecies are about something in the future that hasn't happened yet. He gets all these prophecies about an exile. He doesn't understand any of them. It's only in the Paradiso when he meets his great-great-grandfather, Cachuguida that he gets his call. From that moment forward, he knows exactly what he has to do. And it's not until then. And the call is, it doesn't matter how much people squeam or squirm, how squeamish they are. It doesn't matter how sensitive they are. You have got to say these things whether people are offended or not. Because if you don't, you're failing your calling. Kachiguita is quite clear in all of that. So if there's any uncertainty up until that point, there isn't after that. Dante knows exactly what he's going to do. What he does is exactly that. He comes back, finishes his vision, and writes his poem. What I've been presenting is a piece of prophecy. Now, here in Return of the King, we've got a similar situation. Aragorn goes into the land of the dead. He's been avoiding taking that place. It's an unoccupied throne. It's been waiting, you know, the king of Gondor. It's only there that he picks up his sword and, and uses that sword and the authority and says, do this. And it's only because he wields that sword and has the authority that they do it. So how are we to understand this moment? That's the first part of a couple of it's a it's a multi-form question, I guess. It's the first part of it. How are we to understand this moment that he gets it from the dead, and it's only because the dead respond to him that they can defeat Sauron's army. They're they're going to be destroyed. Even if theoden and Arwen um, and the 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 you know the outcast nephew even if they'd come, they, with their forces, they, the likelihood is they wouldn't have been able to defeat Sauron. It's the forces from the dead that make it possible to defeat Sauron's army. And when Aragorn comes out of the cave, if I remember correctly, um, uh, somebody correct me please here, Just if, if I remember correctly, he comes out as if he's not succeeded in his task. He goes down on a knee next to um, Gimli or Le- um, Legolas as if um, what he set out to do he didn't do. And yet we know that when the approaching armies are coming on the boats, you know, and, and from other um, perspectives, that he brings the land of the dead of the army of the dead there to defeat them and Sauron's armies are defeated. So here's my question. Remember, he comes out and it, it seems that he feels as if he hadn't succeeded with what happened in the, in the mountain. How are we to understand what takes place there? Either this is pure fantasy, absolutely pure fantasy, it's just an adventure story, or there's something else going on. He goes into the land of the dead. It's at that point that he finally assumes the role as king. And at that moment, he takes control of both his own armies and the dead. And at that moment he gives the dead an opening to come out of their condition. Remember, in Virgil Aeneas left his father behind. He's among the dead. In Dante, the people in hell are left where they are. There's an opening to come out. Here in Tolkien The king assumes his rightful place, and when he does with the authority of that sword and the authority that he claims as king, because they won't recognize any other authority, they come out. So what is Tolkien doing? Either this is sheer fantasy, and we blow it off, nice adventure story, or is there some symbolic meaning to this that goes to the heart of a Christian faith? That's my question for the night. Sue, yes, go.
6: Well, I, I see the, the three things that you've really brought up as slightly different, because in Tolkien, Aragorn begins to see, I mean, he's known all along that he should be the heir er of Gondor. He knows that. Right. So from lip. He doesn't want it. He tries to avoid it. Then he gets the sword and begins to change even then. But it is, but he, but he claims that right in the Valley of the Dead, the Cave of the Dead. He's, he does it slightly differently when in the other two stories an, an ancient ancestor tells the person, talks to the person. Here there's nobody among the dead that's telling Aragon. He has to realize through all the forces, he's not going to get what he needs unless he's willing to claim it. But he is the one that claims that leadership role then. And then he can lead them out. And, you know, so it seems to me there's a slight difference. It is still in the land of the dead. And to me, that meant you had to go away from living reality. You had to go to some other part, religious, yes, spiritual, yeah, I, to me, but, but it isn't just a fantasy to me, it's, it's far deeper than that, it's where do you have to go, how do you search your soul so that you are empowered to claim what God intends for you.
0: So, how is that different from what I was saying? I'm not sure. I'm not well,
6: because in the other two cases, they do. Which become, two cases?
0: Which two cases?
6: Well, Dante and. Oh, and
0: right. And Virgil, is, yeah.
6: And Virgil, yeah. It, it's just that there they have to be told. And nobody exactly tells Eric. Right, right. They, they do think, I mean, that's the presentation of the sword is, in a sense, this is yours, take it. But nobody talks to him he he does so it's a little different to me it's not you know in some ways it's very much the same because you have to go into yourself into the debt, into the history into the soul I'm not sure what word to no, use yeah. for it
0: yeah
6: so there's, um, but, oh sorry no sorry go no just but I think he claims it here yeah. in a slightly different way than they did in the
0: yeah no I'm incomplete I, I hope I didn't I thought the way I was presenting it is that way. What I wanted to do was just draw that comparison so that you could see the tradition. For me, the difference that you're describing is real. That's an accurate description of what goes on. The, the question that I'm asking is, what, how do we understand that? What does that mean? I want to be clear now in case what I said wasn't com- clear. It's, it's clear that Tolkien is setting this in a tradition. It was there in Virgilus, there in Dante. These moments when somebody receives a call is in the land of the dead, and in both instances earlier in the in the Aeneid and the Divine Comedy, um, the characters receive it from somebody Don, or Virgil, Aeneas from his father, and it's interesting that it's in a family lineage. Aeneas from his father, and um, Dante from his great 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 grandfather. But the 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 point I wanted to emphasize here is a change takes place in the land of the dead. A colleague is. Takes place. It's realized firmly. What Aragorn does in that moment is take complete control of a situation that is about to be destructive of everything. You know, um, Elrond makes it possible with a sword in some ways. That's the power, but there's no way to use it without an authority. When he goes there, he claims it, and it's only because he does that the, that the, um, the army of the dead go along. So the real question that I'm asking is, how are we to understand that? Either it's pure fantasy, you know, he gathers these armies, or there's something deeper. And my question is, does it go, does it go to a Christian faith? Is what? How do we understand exactly what takes place here? Fred, go ahead.
4: Uh, I'm still getting my arms around this one, but um, yeah, the, the thing that kind of comes to mind is the the transfiguration. Uh, when when Christ goes to the mountain with with uh James Peter and, 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 and John and they see they see Christ or Peter yeah sorry Peter and John and and they see they see Christ in in the, in a in his transfigured state and he's there with Elijah and Moses and they kind of represent the law and the prophets, mm-hmm. and it's kind of an anointing of, of sort. And you, you look at, and I'm not really necessarily trying to compare the three of them, but there, there is a Christian moment there where only only the anointed one can actually communicate with and convert the dead and i mean when you when you see that that kind of a miracle take place you, you you're kind of any questions you had about whether this person is the leader or or not the leader kind of diminishes right yeah. i mean it's like if 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 that can happen who am i to who am i to argue that that you're not the the king or the chosen one yeah but anyway, it's just that's that's kind of what hits me in all of those circumstances. It's 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 a crowning of a sort.
0: Yeah, um, I'd really like to hear from all of you if I can before I can return to anybody else. So I, um Debbie, I didn't know if are you, did, Debbie? Did you have a comment?
1: Well, yeah, I think just to add on to um, what Fred was saying, um, I, you know. Uh, when Christ was in in Gethsemane, you know, he he said, you know, please let this please let this go away. I I, I don't want this.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, I really don't want this. And I think in this instance, you have you have a similar parallel. I really don't want this, but I understand that that this is what I have to do. And if I don't do this. Then there's damnation of really humanity. Um, in in both those cases, you know, the humans were going to lose if he didn't, if if Aragon didn't do this, and and in the case of of Christ, that you know uh, that mankind and and sin was was going to continue, and and we as human beings were going to be damned. Um, so I, there's there's somewhat of of a parallel there. I'm not as as Fred said. You know he doesn't have his arms wrapped all the way around it. I don't know if I do either. But that was the thing that that came to me out of this is in both cases there was there was sort of this sense that they knew what needed to be done, but they really didn't want to do it. Um, and yet they knew that that was what their destiny was.
0: Let me, yes, yes to all that. Let me, let me keep, try to keep the focus here. Let me try to put this different to, to put the focus where I want it. Um, I, I can imagine, I mean, this is, I'm fabricating something. This is, I, I honestly can't imagine, but I'm concocting something as a way of making up a contrast here. I can imagine um, Elrond coming with a sword and saying, here, claim your right, grow up, you know, and. Um, his going out and making a command of the dead or something. But it doesn't happen that way. He, ha- he has to enter um, the the tunnels, you know, the underground of the dead. There's even a scene a little bit like the harrowing where all the rocks come down and threaten the lives of all three men. You know, they narrowly escape. Skulls. Sorry? Skulls, yeah, all the dead. What, what's, a, what's at issue here is this context of the dead. And my question is, and because it's taken place now in three major works, in Virgil, Dante, and it does here. And it's it's about the return of the king. This the third book of the trilogy is about the return of that king. And it's only here that he claims his authority. And I think Sue's right on in, in making that distinction. Um, Virgil gets it, or Aeneas gets it from his father, Dante from his great great grandfather, Aeneas or Aragon steps forward. but So I've got a couple of concerns here. The major one is why the land of the dead? Why is it important here? We know that they can't defeat Sauron without this help. So either this is pure fantasy or there's a dimension of meaning here, something symbolic and real that involves the dead in the outcome of this battle. Um, And it involves a calling, a man reaching a point where he steps forward and in a way that he's not, well, I mean, as I tried to suggest, I think there we can see stages in which if you watch Aragon's decision, he makes decisions that show show the decisions of a leader repeatedly. But it's only here that he finally claims his place as king. And when he does, he claims or gives the dead a choice. So my question is, how do we look at this? Um, the dead were left behind in Dante's world in Hell. Here, the dead are given a chance to redeem themselves, even if they're damned, if we can call that a state of damnation. So this is radical. This is we've not seen. It wasn't present in Virgil. He's, he's pre-Christian. It, a similar or a parallel kind of scene was there in Dante. He has to go to the land of the dead or beyond the land of the living. Doc, what would you say? Do you have
5: a- I mean, what occurred to me when I read it, saw it, um, was the harrowing of hell. That Christ went into hell to people who had already died um, and he, he was there for I don't know, twenty-four hours, thirty-six hours, whatever it was, and he harrowed hell. So I think that the the power that he had over the dead was demonstrated.
0: What does it mean that he brings the dead into the battle? They're dead. So from but I mean I- I'm I, I'm trying to put this as rad If you go to a modern audience who doesn't have any belief in supernatural miracles or anything um, supernatural divine, they'd look at that as pure fantasy. You know, the dead are coming alive, and they're they're actually being instrumental in defeating these powers. Um, what does it mean that he bring that they enter into the battle? Mark, I've been wanting to ask you because I you were. You were so emphatic in expressing your surprise at seeing that there were religious dimension to this meaning. I, I mean, I, I, I'm just glad you did it. I think it's, you know, so often people don't go anywhere, but this certainly is one of those scenes that that raises questions about underlying meanings. Um, a king assumes his authority and calls the dead into action. How 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 do you understand what's going on there, Mark?
3: i can see the parallels between christ and aragorn but i'm not ready to make that connection just yet i'm not necessarily against it but i'm not there just yet because when christ ascended into hell he didn't bring anybody else back
0: um well, he did. He, he, I mean, he, Moses and. I mean, he,
3: Moses? Well, well.
0: You know I mean? All those. And were, it was Moses in hell? Know who right, you knows? Well,
3: you know,
0: well, they were. Uh, That's where they were all until. But anyway, go ahead.
3: Uh, oh, the whole Christian concept of hell wasn't around yet. Christ hadn't died. It was still the Jewish version. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Dante's writing to 1200. Tw- 1200 years after. Give get some wine.
3: So, um, I, I can see the parallels between the two um, I, I guess what what's what i'm struggling with is if this was meant to be a covertly religious work nobody else seems to have picked up on it and i mean nobody i mean in any other in any author any in anybody else um so when you're bringing these parallels to light, I see it and I'm like, well, okay, I can, I can go along with that. but it, it I, I guess to me it's you know it, it's not that overtly religious, although oh, all of the themes and all of the, I guess the morals are um, without being in your face you know, religious type movie. Um, And maybe that's the beauty of it is that it's doing all the right things. It's, it's checking all the correct boxes of how you should be and where, you know, and honor and dignity and and how you should live your life and everything else without being preachy, I guess. Um, And just showing how you do it. Um, So I see what you're saying and I'm not, I can see how you got there. Uh, but I'm not there yet. I'm not against yeah.
0: it. Yeah, No, I know. I'm just not there yet. Let me just throw in something. and I want to go to Barbara and, and Tracy, because been watching Tracy twist her hair back and forth for the last <laughs> 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 Tracy, I know Tracy, I hope you guys, I hope you've made a place for my sense of humor right now. God. Um, Mark, I just want to make a slight correction to what you said when you said nobody's got... By the way, a, a large, large Um, body of critics. Um, The larger body of it, um, Christian, had talked about the religious dimension of Tolkien's trilogy forever. So a whole, a large Christian audience and a large non-Christian audience have addressed these in criticism, so it's nothing new and I'm not... By the way, I I don't know all of that literature, I'm I'm not a Tolkien scholar, but I do know that there are volumes and volumes of things written precisely on these topics but barbara do you have a do you have a thought on what's why the dead and how are we to understand let me let me if i can put i going to i'm so cut it's it's so nice to be able to talk to you guys and and know that you're not going to think i'm insane although you may think i'm insane already anyway but remember 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 when Because this was my major point in the Iliad. When Achilles lost Patroclus, and he reached that point where he said, I'm at fault. I let everybody down. And he accepted his death. The Achilles that goes back into the war is not the Achilles before that moment. He's invulnerable. Nobody can touch him. And I remember making the argument then that he reminds me of somebody like an AA, and an alcoholic, who reaches a point where he says, I'm an alcoholic. When you admit your sins and acknowledge your sins, it's like you're free and you're not afraid anymore. Whatever happens to you is going to happen. In that moment, when that moment comes and those fears are shed, you find yourself in a position of doing things that you could have never done before, because before that you were partly arrested. We know that from ordinary cases of addiction, and or sin, it's at the center of our church. It's one of the reasons we go to confession to say, I've let everybody down, I've failed. Because in doing that and getting free of them, those things don't have their hold on us quite as much anymore. So in the very first book that opens our tradition, Achilles, we find a similar moment. If you remember, when that happens, um, he goes out, he doesn't have his armor yet. Remember, and we talked about this. Thetis is making new armor because the armor he had used before, the armor which Patroclus taken, and then Hector, they both die when they put it on. Thetis made new armor. It was for him. It was not his mother's. And once he put that armor on, remember he went out, went out in the deep ditch and shouted, 24 Trojans died. Homer describes him as luminous. There's something. So long before the coming of Christ, these poets had a sense that something transcendent could enter into man that made it possible for him to do things in a way that he couldn't have done before or other people couldn't do. The same thing happened with Odysseus, the same thing happened with Aeneas. So we see these, let me give another example. Peter betrays Christ. Peter, because this to me goes right to the point. It doesn't answer the question about the dead. But I'm hoping it's getting it's closer. Peter betrays Christ. He betrays God. He betrays him. After the crucifixion, in the beginning of Acts, Peter is an entirely different man. He takes control. He takes responsibility. He has an authority he never had before. So, Mark, in your terms, from the world's perspective if you just if you were in one of the cities that Peter preached in after Christ's death and resurrection because remember he's dead and resurrected now Peter's seen it all and Christ has come to him and said feed my sheep what are you going to do do you love me when we see Peter if we if people describe Peter in whatever marketplace he went to preach they would have described an ordinary man it's the same man, two years earlier who had been walking around Jerusalem or Rome, they would have described that he would have had the same appearance, the same look, the same man, except a major change would have taken place. They would have felt themselves in the presence of somebody who had an authority that he didn't have. So it wasn't like gods were flying around him or somebody from Mars. In human terms, it seemed describable in human terms. And yet, something changed. So to go back to my question, Aragon goes to the land of the dead and he claims this authority, he takes the sword and um, gives these men, these damned souls, a chance to be released from their sins, their betrayals, because all of them had betrayed somebody. What do we make of that moment? How are we to understand it? Sorry, Barbara, go ahead. What how do you what's your why the land of the dead and what's going on in this moment?
2: I from the beginning of watching these movies, I in order to figure out the Christian part of this, I've been looking for a Christ figure, I've been looking for the point of redemption and I I'm still going round and round. But um, the only way that I can think of going to the dead is that good things happen when you die to yourself and you move on from there. When you die to yourself, then you're free, as you were talking about admitting when you're wrong or admitting when you sinned, you're free to... To do better, to be another person, to change. And in Aragon's um, situation, he was free after he went to the dead. He had the help he needed in order to get the sword and do what he did in order to become king. That's that's all I
0: got. No, that's good. Don't. It's not all. That's
6: that's
0: all I got. Oh, if I, how how can I change, what can I do to help you? There's more in that all than you give credit for. What else can I say? I won't say that
7: anymore.
0: No, yes you will. (laughs) Tracy, what do you, what's your take on this? What do you, what do you, how do you, we're in a tradition Aeneas goes into the land of the dead, so does Dante, here's Aragon, and a transformation takes place, something happens, that calls the dead into play. What are we to make of this?
1: I don't know exactly. I keep going in my... I've been thinking... racking my brain the whole time you've been trying to ask this question and clarify I think I go to metaphors uh, such as we are... the world is the land of the dead or you are not called unless you die to yourself um or without redemption, you know that there can't like almost like with to have a king and there has to be redemption <laughs> connected I, I don't I have no idea
0: yeah, good. The dead
5: are beyond you the dead are beyond being vulnerable, they're dead, judgment has been passed, if that's what happens, Um, but you can't threaten them. What are you going to threaten them with? There's nothing to threaten them. So they have to do it.
0: But you can release them.
5: They have to do it of their own volition, and Aragorn gave them a chance to step out of the dead state. I mean, they'll still be dead to the world, mm-hmm. but out of the sort of limbo state where they they can't move on. They're just stuck in their right. betrayal. Right. He gave them a chance to move on from that. But they had to do it of their own volition. And they were dependent. There's
0: no threat duck with that sword the way he holds it up in that scene?
5: No, I don't think so. He's, he's claiming his authority. And they owe to give him,
0: them that option
5: yeah they owe him what they didn't do when they betrayed the former king um, and they know that if he's the true king um, that they owe it to him but they do it of they do it of their own they do it of their own volition they're not they're because the option the, is given I mean there's yes, an opening yeah right yeah. Um, And it's interesting to me also that when Aragorn comes out of the tunnel after confronting the dead, he thinks he's failed. And it's only after he's thought he's failed for, I don't know, five or six minutes, um, feeling terrible about it because it means that he can't help the people at Minas Tirith. that the king of the dead comes out and says, we will fight for you.
0: In that scene? Yes.
5: Mm. Um, And in that particular scene, it's like a confirmation of his having taken the authority. (laughs) Um, Because they wouldn't have done it for anybody else. They only would have done it for the rightful king. And when they say, we'll fight it confirms him in what he was trying to do.
0: Yeah. Yes, to all that, I just want to add one thing to what Susan... Every, every, you all could hear, right? We've been talking about um, the taking of the auspices. That ought to be grounded into your <coughs> souls and hearts by now. You know, that that's a confirmation. Um, that One of the one of the interesting the aspects of that scene when Aragon comes out is that... Um, for me, it re- I mean, there's several things going on here that just can't be explained in modern, scientific, or empirical terms that make this deeply religious. Aragon steps into a mystery. He has no control over this. It's not like anybody... I, I, I think Sue touched on it by saying, you know, there's a certainty in the sense that, in Don- or in uh, Virgil, in the sense that um, Anchises gives him his calling. It's there. So he hands it on. There's the same kind of certainty with Dante and Cacciaguida. It's there. Cacciaguida hands it on. In Aragon, in Tolkien, <clears throat> Aragon steps into it. It's like, a, it's like the mystery of a grace, and it involves a wonder. Either this is fantasy, sheer fantasy, or it's religious in the deepest sense, in the sense in which we've been talking about, because it involves a mystery and a risk. When you, when, when you do things, when you go through your... Here, I mean, the typical response of Americans is, there's a problem. Now, what's the solution? I mean, the habitual mindset of the American, we've got a problem, do this, fix it. At the center of Christianity, that's not so. Christianity says, um, you have to risk stepping into a mystery when you don't know the outcome. And what's going to determine what happened may cost your life. But if you go into it thinking, I've got the answers, and if I do, this is going to happen. All you're doing is showing your arrogance. In these moments, we're seeing people make a risk without knowing what's going to happen. They're in the middle of a mystery for which they do not have an answer. When Aragon comes out of the cave, as Suzanne described him, he's on his knees. It's only when the king of the dead comes out that he's confirmed. So what we, what we were witnessing was a sequence of events enveloped in a mystery, if I can put it that way. And everything was at stake. And at the heart of it was a man, I mean, the words that you, you guys read, dying to himself, putting, putting away all those things that got in the way of his stepping forward, for him to become who he was given to be, and I take that as a paradigm for all of us. You know, it, whatever whatever goes on in any, it doesn't have to be to the head of an army or, but Achilles, Odysseus, and Dante, you know, for me are images of something human for all of us that, all of us face situations where, um. You know, we have to either put ourselves away completely. Or stay in some kind of an arrest with our sins, you know pretending like they're not there. I thought um, I can't think it was Barbara who was describing it as getting free of them or you know um, when you admit them or um, to put this in a to try to move it back again in the direction of this question that I'm asking about the Land of the Dead, it's hard for me to picture Peter after his conversion, after Christ dies and he has to face his sin, he betrayed God. The Peter that we say at the beginning of the Acts is not the same Peter. I I don't see Peter afraid of anything. The dead cannot touch him. Um, nothing will ha- if, if anything happens, like what happens to martyrs when they go to their death, they are not afraid. They are people fully in possession of something because they, they live so completely with Christ that the world has no effect on them anymore. I don't know if that takes us into the land of the dead. I mean, that's partly where my question is going, that somehow what happens with Aragon and Dante and Aeneas can't be separated from the dead. The, the, how we, however we understand this, it's got to change the way we look at living and the way we look at death. Um Anyway, any, Sue, you've got, you go ahead, Sue, you got.
6: Well, I, I've had a couple of thoughts with this, and Suzanne really kind of triggered a whole new way of looking at it. And that is that, what I tried to say before is I think that for me, the land of the dead is is not, it is more than it's not in the land of the living. It is giving up of oneself. It's turning over to forces we don't understand, so it's the mystery of it. But it's interesting that there is still, I know it was couched in terms of this was the deal in the past, but it, but we are, the, the souls there are in a sense like they're in purgatory. They can't go back, they can't go forward, they can't do anything, but they're kind of held in this hostage situation because they deserted and they did bad things. But they're given a chance at redemption and it is still their will whether to choose that or not. And that was an interesting... I hadn't thought about so much about the will. I'm not sure this isn't more Protestant than Catholic. I don't know that (laughs) because I never know those distinctions. But to me, when you accept a calling, you are not in the land of the living. You are not in the The humdrum of life, you have gone beyond that, away from that. And to me, the land of the dead was sort of a metaphor for that. On the other hand, even when you've died, there is a chance at grace. There is a way back through God. So to me, that's kind of the neat part about this, is that they have a choice. They have to make that choice, but they have a a way of redemption, even, even after death.
0: Yeah, Yeah, let me, I'm going to put this, um, wait, wait, by the way, Sue, you said that it's a little bit like purgatory, because they're not going, remember, I just want to qualify. Wait a minute,
6: I'm not, I'm really not going there, what I'm saying is that's sort of the Catholic idea of a of a way station where you're not completely damned and you're not completely yeah redeemed. Yeah, yeah yeah okay that's all i meant not that you're not there <laughs> trying to earn their way out of it but in a sense they do that I know. they do, do it the same way dante described i get those distinctions i just
0: yes i just wanted to to avoid a confusion here because you use the word purgatory and in purgatory remember according to a catholic view and i i think for protestants in you know the higher denominations Purgatory um, is a place in which people are moving forward. Hell is a place where people are caught. So the land of the dead here is more like hell than purgatory. Let me put this question to you guys bluntly, really bluntly, because this is what sort of shakes me. There are lots of people within the church who have and who currently do take the position that um, all all souls one day will be forgiven that God wants all to be forgiven and ultimately they will. So people who take some comfort in believing that Hitler is in hell where he belongs you know, are going to have to struggle with that because it's, it's going to play with their mind that those things don't happen, that people are in hell and that's it and people are in heaven or purgatory and they're on their way to heaven. Um, Dante left the souls in hell. They're there. I mean, that's the picture we have. And the traditional understanding of the church is that there are questions on the part of some people. Some of them have been popes. I mean, this is not a minority. It's but it's a view that's you know been part of the Catholic tradition forever. It's it's not the public position, and I mean, it's not one that's encouraged because it it can lead to all sorts of problems. If if there's if you do away with hell, um, you take away. Um, a disincentive, a you know, if if you believe that there are no consequences to your actions, you can do whatever you want because finally hell's not going to matter. So it's not a it's not something to play with. It's a it's a it's a difficult position and a touchy one and a dangerous one. One of the interesting things about token for me is that that's exactly what seems to happen. And it's interesting to me that it only happens when a man assumes his place as a king. Now there are all sorts of ramic The ramifications to what's going on in Tolkien from here are extraordinary. Every Catholic at baptism is baptized into a calling that he is going to be priest, prophet, and king. And the question facing every Catholic should be will he accept that call? Will he accept his prophetic call? Will he be a priest? Will he take on the authority of a king, or will he dodge them? Um, um, *Violent Bear Away was about a man who did everything kin to avoid his calling. I mean that, and um, *Thomas* or I mean uh, *Murder of the Cathedral*. Eliot's book was about a man facing martyrdom, answering his call. So we've been we've been dealing with this thing at the center of our Catholic faith, and it involves a real mystery. Lots of people, lots of Catholics go through the world, approaching the world the way the secular mind does. Here's a problem, here's how to fix it. It's a serious question whether they enter into a mystery. So many of the books that we've been reading show human beings entering into a mystery where they have to risk themselves. They have to step into a position where they don't have answers to things. They are, they are absolutely putting their life at risk. And to step into that risk means putting away every all the conditions that they set on things. Aragon, Gimli, and Legolas enter into that cave, knowing that they're facing death. They're putting their lives at risk. It's a little bit like what Achilles did, what Odysseus, and I mean, we've been Dante. Dante didn't want to go. He made it very clear at the beginning. He said, "I'm not Aeneas, and I'm not Saint Paul. Get somebody else." Virgil says, "Knock it off. You're going." until Dante receives that call, at which point he's a changed man. And we know from conversions in in addiction centers, we know it from people like Paul or I mean Peter, that something happens inwardly or can happen when a person somehow becomes who he was given to be. And the time-space references by which we ordinarily measure a man or character have to fall away because they're not adequate to explain what's going on in those moments. The world cannot understand them. Human beings can't. They're in a, I mean, whoever put it that way, Barbara, you're in a different sort of realm, or Susan, or I mean Sue. What, what Aragon presents the, dam, the damned with, these because all of those souls, if, remember, they're anguished and evil-looking, sinister and violent. He offers them an out they have a chance to be released from that condition and fulfill, and it's interesting, to fulfill a role of obedience. We have not touched on this in the whole trilogy, but I hope it's obvious that it's there. Every father-son, every king-subject, every relationship is defined in some terms by obedience, whether somebody gives their will to something, whether they want to or not, and often here, one of the best examples at the end of the book, Faramir gives obedience to his father when his father is sending him to his death. Obedience can't rest on meeting our conditions. Mary made that clear. At the center of our Catholic faith is an obedience. We can't private revelation or private judgment. It can't rest on what we privately make of something when we're asked to do something by somebody whose authority is greater we're, we're asked to give our wills to it. It's one of the things the Catholic faith is most criticized for. These, these men, the dead, the army of the dead, failed in a matter of obedience. They betrayed their... They did not follow through in what they were asked to do. And in that sense, in one way, they image all of us as human beings because I'm, you know my, one of my claims from the beginning is after the fall, one of the, one of the spirits that define us as human beings is defiance. We want to have our way, we want to do what we want to do. We can justify that on religious grounds. Catholic faith does everything can to take that away. So here we've got a man entering the army or the land of the dead and offering them an option. And in one sense, it it seems like he's saying that the dead can be released given these conditions when somebody who steps into that authority, like Peter after his conversion, when he claims to be one with Christ can do what he did. How many conversions did Peter affect by his talks after his conversion? There's a power, how many, when people give witness in addiction centers, somebody's an alcoholic and they admit that they're an alcoholic and they go through the program, it's those people that are called on to come back to witness their experiences. They're the ones who can have the most influence on other people. It's not the college graduates who think they know everything. It's people who witness to their experiences. What? How do we understand this moment with the dead? It's like the, the the dead is called into play by taking it out of play. They become one with this person. And he's able to accomplish these extraordinary things. So either this is pure fantasy or it's showing that there is something supernatural happening in these moments, the way it happened with Achilles, the way it happened with Odysseus, the way it happened with Aeneas, Dante, and now here, Aragon. So, you know, when we live our faith daily, it's easy to sort of just go through the motions. Is Tolkien just giving us a nice adventure story, or like, Virgil and Homer and Dante and others. He's showing us that something extraordinary is going on that people who look at things in social or political or psychological terms will never be able to explain. These are the mysteries at the center of our church. Most people are going to talk about these things as if they're fantasy, a nice enjoyable thing. They're either fantasy or... They're showing something extraordinary the way Homer did or Virgil or Dante. Or Let me stop there. Any questions or comments on what this moment, what's going on? Because, because I hope it's clear. It turns the whole action. <clears throat> they, they save Gondor, the place that is waiting for the king to return. And it's at that moment in that scene that the, that the king claims his place. He returns. He defeats the armies, and when he does, he turns his attention on Mordor, or on Mordor and makes it possible for um, Frodo and Sam to complete their mission. The last thing, I mean, we, we're not going to have time to talk about it, but it, we'll let it go, but I, I hope it's just clear to everybody. I, I, whoever, I think it was Barbara, I can't remember, I'm sorry. You know, the, the book ends with... Um, with Frodo finally completing his task, getting to the pit, and then being unable to take the ring to give the ring up. My own reading of that, I, I, I'd be surprised if anybody differed with. I just think Tolkien is showing us how difficult, impossible, impossible sin is to give up without help, without grace. And here, I mean, like I mean, I suggested in my note, it's a severe mercy. It's it's painful at cost. Um, It's interesting that Gollum is going to go to his own death for every for every occasion given to him to get out of it to turn all the occasions. He wants that ring and it's only because he takes it off that Frodo gets free of it and that moment becomes a grace for Frodo and in that moment Gollum takes the ring to his death and I'm presuming to his own damnation. So there's an awful lot going on in this last book, The Return of the King. It, in some ways, it's, um, it really is about the return of the king, that a king is just not to be understood in political terms, just not, that, that a king has a divine right, that there's something God gives to the authority of a king, something he adds um that makes life much much harder in some ways particularly for the one who carries that responsibility but any comments or thoughts on what's going on in this last book that completes the trilogy Tracy Fred Come on, I know, no, I know. Come on, come on. What, what are your thoughts, Michelle or Bill? I actually, actually, I'm sorry. I meant to call on you guys earlier when I was going through every, around it. You guys have some thoughts on this. You all know um, Michelle and Bill are from the C's group. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here. I'm sorry. I should have. God, I meant to call on you earlier. You guys have a thought on this?
7: I just
0: <clears throat> it see it just seemed to me so much that
7: the um, the if you look at the the kings or the leaders and how much they were penetrated by the the dark side or the devil and how much it it, it was amazing to me it that the, the 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 people that had to fight were um the 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 basic people, the laity, we had to like stand up because our politicians our, our kings were not standing up for us, and that was that was pretty powerful to me.
0: What well, was pretty our revolution or the story? I'm sorry. No,
7: in in the kings oh. in, in the in the. In the two towers, in oh, the, yeah, yeah. you know, they just the the leaders just did not seem to stand up for their people.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Theoden has a remarkable comeback. I mean, he, I think he dies a good death. He's he's a, he gets out from under Wormtongue. Um, he still has failings, but it seems to me he's he's a good man. He dies a good death. His what happens between him and his daughter is really touching. One of the ironies of our modern world is that we, we, I mean, Tolkien is faithful to history. Typically kings don't do well. I only know of one really good king in history. It was King Louis, who was a saint. I mean, just a genuinely good king. Most kings, most kings are not good. Our revolution was based on the premise that if we took responsibility for our lives, and um, we would be better off. Um, I mean, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves right now is how well are our representatives serving us, you know, Lincolns for the people, by the people, of the people? How well do our, how well do our part politicians serve us so that we're the ones who are, you know, directing our government? Or are the leaders doing what kings have always done? They're taking power on themselves. You know, it's, it, um, politically, our country's in a mess right now. Has been for a long time. Any last comments on Tolkien, on the 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 way the trilogy concludes, Mark? Or I don't. Maybe you're still not there. But is this? Does this work have a religious dimension to it, or are you still unsettled on that oh, question? Oh no, no,
3: no! I, I think that it does, but I think it's just very well hidden. Well, well, it is and It isn't. I mean, we all get the point, but it's right. not in your face preaching right but right. listening to your wife talk kind of triggered something about is the Gorn story arc about hope because he brings hope in the first one and the first one to the small little group of hobbits and mm-hmm. the second one he brings hope to the king and the people in the third one he brings hope to the dead people and then it finally brings hope to the whole kingdom. So I, I, she, that triggered in my head, I don't know if it's right or wrong, right? I just thought about that. Is is it about him able to give hope to a greater group of people or something? I don't know. No, Maybe what a, just...
0: Yeah, what a nice way to put it, Mark. No, no, no. It's a good summary of the... I mean, the, the, what I like about it is it puts the focus on the king. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about finally the king recovering his place and establishing authority Um, and your way of putting it is really, Debbie, any last words?
1: Well, what I absolutely loved is that Sam got to go home to this lovely wife and two little kids (laughs) and had a really good time in the Hobbit house. Yeah.
0: One of the wonderful things about the ending for me is that the, the whole series, the trilogy, has been about war and violence, men, count comrades at war. The, the the spirit of men sharing battle, you know, um, having to physic not because they didn't have guns then, and, you know, I mean, they, you had to go out and physically beat a, an opponent physically. And we saw men dying all the time. They weren't being, I mean, arrows could shoot them, but. But there was a wonderful affirmation of the human family because one of the things that um, Sam had to confront is going home and putting away the warrior. He He had to go home, take care of a wife, raise children. He could not remain in the past, in that heroic past. That heroic past was over. He had to attend to things in his family. I just... Tolkien just to me does amazing things and I that was one of my I really enjoyed the ending for that. Debbie let me ask you because I if I remember correctly when we first began you said you hadn't watched it and you weren't weren't enjoying it or something or did
1: No did, no, no no no. I had uh, what I said was I had never seen it. And um because my prejudice prior to seeing it is that I thought it was it was you know, just not even a fan. Uh, fantasy was not. Uh, I was um, sci-fi. That's the word that I use. Um, I I do think that it's it, it it's more a fantasy than a sci-fi, but um, it, it was a prejudice that I had because I don't lo- I don't particularly enjoy uh, science fiction genre. I just I just don't I don't I don't get it. I don't I, I don't enjoy it that much, and so it was a bias that I had. I must say that having watched it, I really enjoyed it, and frankly, I would oh, really like to see it again.
0: Good, good because, good.
1: because I think you miss a whole lot the first time through. For sure. And I think, I think that Mark has read it. Suzanne obviously has read it, and so their depth of understanding is a whole lot more than mine, having watched it one time. That's it. That's all I got.
0: I'm glad. I was glad. I'm glad you're... I'm glad you were enjoying it because I, I know the first part of you wasn't easy, or the first film, but anybody else? Anybody else? Bill, did you have something as your I'm sorry.
6: I can't hear you, Sue. Sorry. I had a question but it's after this, so let's wrap this up first.
0: Okay, you're going to ask for people to stay online then?
6: No, I have a question of you. More
0: oh, than any- I don't know how to do this. No. If, if I click off, I, I won't have the... A-
6: no, okay, the question is just, have I missed an email about when we're all getting together, or do we know that? No. No, okay. No. No. Oh, by, I-
0: wait, by the way, I'm glad. So next week we're off. Yeah. Next week we're off, and the following week we start Chesterton's Orthodoxy. Um, so that, that dinner date is still to be planned. I talked with okay. Father So. I thought we said this. We talked with Father so- and he He doesn't see anything happening until the end of summer so we'll have it here. we we will we will either have a dinner here um, before the end of the course or we'll have it at the end i'm not but we'll we'll talk together and and decide our date we're going to start I,
6: I'm about to start on thankfully a trip i mean not thankful that i'll miss but thankful that there are trips um and so i won't be back until mid to late july uh, yeah. Mid July,
0: really. Yeah, um, I, I think what I'm going to do, Sue, is write a letter to everybody and ask about summer and if okay. if everybody wants to take a couple of weeks off or how people want to handle that. I'm not sure. Okay. What, what we've got next is orthodoxy, <coughs> and then a, and then the gospels. So we've got just a few works, and how we're going to manage that time frame, I don't know.
5: Okay. Um, we, won't, we won't be done before the end of July. You'll be back.
0: We'll we'll talk together and, and set up a schedule together. Whatever whatever will be most convenient to all of you guys. And we'll either wait till the end, which is a you know fast approaching, or have a dinner before then and then finish whatever. <coughs> I'd be glad to have a couple of dinners with you guys. So. <laughs> we
6: can always meet at Kirby's Bob
0: <coughs> Oh god. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. If, do you all know that our our son is the manager there? So um, I don't know that he'll want this group there, but yes, we can.
5: <laughs> of course, he will.
0: Okay, you guys. Um, we won't meet next Monday, but the following week we, we start Orthodoxy. I put the outline of Orthodoxy online so you can go there under a file, and um, I also put some shorter works of Chesterton that are to, some of the works. By the way, if you're looking for a good collection of essays, buy Chesterton's Tremendous Trifles. They're silly, fun, but they have his typical kind of wisdom. Um,
6: I looked online today, and you can get 50 of Chesterton's books on Kindle for $1.99. Wow. Including Orthodox. Oh. Wow. It's in some kind of collection, and it has all the Father Brown mysteries, which I love on TV. And... (laughs) You know, so it has it has
0: a whole variety of things. Okay, okay. You guys have a good week. Um, it's been a pleasure to go over token with you guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Okay, stay safe. See you then. Bye. Bye.